0: wrong in this situation. He took a pitch in the back. He got beamed for crying out loud. Heart we used heart attack? Me. Managers on a major league baseball team don't make decisions. <laughs> the credibility in this situation is worse than losing your job. Was it over with bomb pro castration of the major league baseball managers, we know it. Ask me about my win.
1: What's going on, everybody, another edition of the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by St. Alwish's Church in Jackson, New Jersey. Um, thinking about Black Monday as it exists in a world of pro football. And uh, listen, I think some, some pet peeves kind of come towards um, the forefront when we're thinking about this. You know, is the equivalent of winning a football championship, a Super Bowl, to see the coach of your favorite team get fired. I think there's a lot of negative vengeance that's involved in that, but I'm gonna start out by thinking of a couple different elements of what, what makes the good or the best coach? What makes a coach in a position where they could be more successful? It's obvious that there is a tie between the powerful offenses as they're run in the National Football League, and the head coaches that you could say, hey, that guy's a good head coach. Sean McVay is a good head coach. Kyle Shanahan, he's a good head coach. Even down to the worlds of Cliff Kingsbury, is it an offensive mind who's putting in an offensive system that's centered around a, yeah, you guessed it, a good quarterback. So you're looking at a group of teams that have fired their head coaches today, and like I said, fans they they live in their own world fan is short for fanatic for a reason you know most fans are completely delusional when it comes to what their favorite team should do you know a lot of times uh it's the answer to the question is hey you got to get better talent and for some reason a lot of fans are ignorant to the fact that their team needs to get better talent like you blame the giants coaching staff for an offensive game plan that's centered around players that aren't NFL offensive players. I think that's a little bit of, of a hypocrisy. Yeah, you, know, you go after the coach, but there's no system in place because there's not players to succeed in a good system. And obviously, you see the correlation as it exists as we're getting ready for Super Wild Card weekend, six games. I'm excited about the Nickelodeon game again, i got to be honest. You know, It sounds corny, but I thought that was one of the more fun things that – the NFL did last year is have a game on Nickelodeon, you know, and anybody with their kids or grandkids could sit there and watch it and see the elements of football that little kids could kind of get into. But, yeah, you know, the correlation between the coach and the quarterback, the correlation between the good quarterback. And success in a National Football League. You know, this isn't the, the 1985 Bears and Buddy Ryan running the, uh, uh, from a defensive coordinator standpoint or the, the, the Ravens of 2000 or any of the great defensive teams in a National Football League. Listen, you even think of the, the defense that Seattle had when they won their Super Bowl and, you know, the 12th man and uh, the Legion of Boom. That might have been the last defense that could actually have that much of an impact on a team winning and a team losing. And you saw what they did to the Broncos in that Super Bowl. And and they, they, they came against everything that Peyton Manning could do from an offensive standpoint. So absolutely, a good defense could win a Super Bowl. It's been proven before. But if you don't have a quarterback, which, by the way, Seattle won with Russell Wilson, you could go back to the Bears of 85 and say, hey, Jim McMahon, you know, was he that much better than, a, I don't know, than a Trent Dilfer or a, or a uh, Brad Johnson? You look at some of the quarterbacks in the National Football League, Craig Morton, you know, for an you know, older generation. You think of quarterbacks that, you know, by themselves, they probably weren't the reason why their teams won the Super Bowl. And, you know, listen, if you have things working in other elements of a pro football game, then... I think the chances, uh, or the gap that needs to be bridged by having a good quarterback, uh, is a little bit less. You maybe you don't need that great of a quarterback. You need a good quarterback, but maybe not, uh, you know, maybe not a uh, all-time quarterback. Maybe you don't need Aaron Rodgers or Drew Brees or Tom Brady or uh, Peyton Manning per se. Obviously, you'd prefer that. But if you look at everything that's going on in the National Football League, teams are firing their coach because these coaches don't have quarterbacks. You know, Brian Flores, who, by the way, under no circumstance deserved to lose his job, might go down as the first head coach in the National Football League history to lose his job the same year as his team won seven games in a row. Because I can't imagine a team winning seven games in a row and then still firing their head coach. But the problem is he doesn't have a quarterback. Tua Tongliavoa could be a serviceable quarterback. He's not going to be a star. He's certainly not going to live up to that at one point dreamt of number one overall pick type of status when he came from the University of Alabama. Do the Dolphins have to go out there and get a quarterback? Well, they probably do. And if they had a more serviceable quarterback, let's say they made the trade for Deshaun Watson this year. Let's say Russell Wilson was there. Let's say they had uh, another top-level quarterback, perennial Pro Bowl-winning quarterback. The Dolphins win those couple extra games that are in the playoffs, and Brian Flores still has his job. So it doesn't mean, and Brian Flores is probably the best example of how a team could succeed with a defensive-minded head coach in this day and age. Brian Flores is going to get hired next week. Uh, I mean, any of the teams that have an opening, you'd be absolutely out of your mind. To not interview Brian Flores, and by the way, the NFL you have to, you know, Brian being African American is certainly gonna fill a lot of quotas, and and I mentioned quotas like this because I think it's garbage what you're seeing going on in, in uh, Las Vegas with the Raiders. Now, Mark Davis, you know, may not want to listen to the Rooney Rule. Mark Davis may not want to do anything that the NFL tells him to do. Mark Davis. Obviously, we talk about the son of Al Davis, not the Cy Young Award winner in 1989 with the Padres, the relief pitcher. But Mark Davis is still pissed off that the NFL basically forced him to fire John Gruden. Now, John Gruden in his past and the, the emails that came to light were the main reason that Gruden ended up losing his job. But Mark Davis is a little bit pissed off about it. He's a little bitter. He's not too happy with the commissioner. But, I mean, for him to not abide by the Rooney Rule, which... You, know, you interview a person of color. Even if you believe it's a token interview, it's part of what you should do. He didn't do it last time when he hired John Gruden. John Gruden was the number one candidate that he had. He went out there. He met with John Gruden and figured out what it would take to pay John Gruden to be his next head football coach with the Raiders. And he's probably going to do it again with Jim Harbaugh when it comes to Michigan. Now, is he going to be able to pry Harbaugh out of Michigan? Listen. A lot more people in Michigan like Jim Harbaugh because they were, played for a bowl championship. You know, didn't make it to the finals, but you know, we're one of the top four teams in a bowl championship series. They beat Ohio State for the first time and it seems like, forever. And, you know, Jim Harbaugh maybe wanted to ride out, you know, what it's like in Michigan as a head football coach there. You succeed in Michigan, listen, that's as good as succeeding with a lot of NFL teams. You know, you're going to send him? You're going to go to Las Vegas? Is he going to fix the Raiders? Ah, listen, that's all in the mind of Mark Davis, who shares a lot of the same mentality as his father Al did. But once again, you, know, you, you tell me that Mark Davis can't interview Brian Flores. Mark Davis can't interview Jim Caldwell. There's an, enough African-American uh, uh, coaches. Eric Bieniemy, who continues to get passed over. Brian, Byron Leftwich with Tampa Bay as the offensive coordinator, continuing to get passed over. Listen, I think there should be some sanctions against Mark Davis if he goes the route of just, hey, I'm going to go hire my coach. I'm going to go get Jim Harbaugh. You know, F every uh, other candidate that we could put in there. I'm not going to give a token interview. Now, listen, is the token interview bullshit? Yeah, of course it is. And over the history of this implementation of the Rooney Rule... Has there been garbage where teams say, hey, let me find somebody with dark skin, bring them in here, give them a token interview just to say that we did our job, but really our eyes are set on this particular coach. I get it. I mean, I don't understand it. I think you, you should give more candidates. The reason that the Rooney Rule is put into effect is to open your minds for more diverse hires and not just look you know, white like you know, rice. When you're looking for your head coach, and I don't think teams intentionally do that. I think there's a lot of behind-the-scenes things that have kept African Americans from getting jobs as head coaches in a National Football League. Certainly, you've seen more executives still on the coaching front. It's not. It's not so sound. And guys like Mark Davis aren't helping. I tell you this. You know, Mark Davis. All he has to do is the bare minimum. And like I said, I don't believe in a token interview. I think the token interview is bullshit. But you got a, you got a guy that's owning a major NFL team that isn't even trying to comply with your rule. And it's a shame because his dad was was open to, to integration as anybody. He hired, excuse me, the first NFL head coach that was black in what, almost 70 years? 68 years when he hired Art Shell in 1988, 1989? So, you're talking about a franchise that is extremely diverse and one in which, uh, you know, ha- had a very good reputation, which is why they had to separate themselves from John Gruden. Now, could Jim Harbaugh be the right choice as you go down the road? Is he the coach to lead the Raiders to a championship? Well, you look at Rich Basaccia, t- he got the team into the playoffs, a team that was kind of up and down all year. There was a chance they could have gotten in. They got the bizarre game, which I'm going to get into in a little bit. The Sunday night game between them and the Chargers. But you know, if you want to stick with him as your head coach, I have no issue with it. Odds are Mark Davis wants Jim Harbaugh. And I don't think there's going to be a real drawn-out process. I don't think you're going to get that typical minority candidate that's going to get a legitimate interview. And if he does... It's because the NFL patted him on the back, tapped him on the shoulder, and said, hey, you probably should interview a minority candidate because that's what you agreed to. So, all this bullshit that you're hearing last night about if the Chargers and the Raiders finish in a tie, both teams are going to make it into the postseason, that's all they had to do. All they had to do was not try. All they had to do was finish with the same amount of points as the other team. If you're the Chargers, if you're the Raiders, hey, just take a knee, forget about the game. Basically stands against everything that professional football is about. And just because it's possible, doesn't mean it was ever likely. And here's the issue that I have with it. Obviously, you think about the competitive nature of your average NFL player, NFL team, NFL organization. Nobody's gonna just kneel down. And I think it's a hard enough, and think about it, you needed really Joe Pasarczyk in, what was it, 1980, to fumble a handoff, which resulted in a Herman Edwards touchdown that cost the New York football Giants a game before teams started to, to, to do the victory formation. So even before that, teams were playing up until the last second. They were handing the ball off, yes, they were a lot more conservative with a lead, they weren't throwing the ball, they were running out the clock, but running out the clock with actual plays that were going on, and all of a sudden you see a team cost itself a game because they can't get a proper exchange for a handoff, now you see teams, the victory formation, kneeling down, taking a knee, saying, hey, we're just gonna run out the clock. I'm not expecting the teams that are competing with each other to win a game think that that's a good idea. They're playing their starters, which Justin Herbert and Derek Carr played, right? There's nobody coming off the bench. It was obvious both of these teams cared about this game. Both of these teams wanted to get themselves into the playoffs. And, yes, it took a bizarre scenario. The Colts, who are certainly one of the bigger favorites coming into the week to win their football game, they get beat up and almost have a no-show against the Jacksonville Jaguar team that has been through its own demise this year. You know, let's try to get through a show without talking about Urban Meyer. So the Colts' loss set up this unique scenario: a Pittsburgh win, and now Pittsburgh is there saying, "Hey, if one of these teams win, we go to the playoffs. If they finish in a tie, both of the teams that are playing each other get into the playoffs, and the Steelers are out." Listen, it's just it's bad ethics. Uh, it's something that competitive players and teams are not going to be in favor of doing. I wouldn't be surprised if somebody was in favor of it. You may find a player that could have been okay with it. You may find a coach. You may find an owner, an organization that says, hey, if we were in that situation, maybe we would just uh, had this handshake agreement that we finish in a tie so we both get to the playoffs. First of all, the Raiders and Chargers, they, they don't like each other enough to do that. And in fact, if there were two teams in a National Football League that quote-unquote liked each other enough to do that, then I'd question their leadership because the NFL is not to be a uh, patty cake type of game. It's not doing the hokey pokey. It's not sitting there doing country line dancing while swinging your arms round and round, loving and hugging your opposition. Football is played with a lot of aggression. It's played with a lot of anger, hostility. You know, Teams do not like each other. Players should not like each other. Offensive players should not get along with defensive players, even on their own team. If you go back to 1993 with the Houston Oilers and the fights they had between the offense and the defense, and Buddy Ryan is the defensive coordinator saying your job is to beat the hell out of the offense. Start by beating up our offense, and you're going to beat up the top offenses in the National Football League. Players on a football field are not meant to be nice. They're not meant to be cordial. They're not meant to get along with each other. And as long as you don't have somebody like a dope like an Antonio Brown, at, you know, just sitting there with his shirt off, like he escaped from a mental institution, you know, you're supposed to you're supposed to have some aggression and hostility that's negative towards the team that you're playing. So under no circumstances do did I ever expect the Chargers and the Raiders. To agree to play to a tie, and like I said, this would have, I think, resulted in some sort of change in regards to rules when it comes to the NFL. I mean, you have the the basically the, a compromise of the ability to play a football game, and then you talk about gambling, FanDuel and DraftKings, and how the sport has been so saturated with gambling that's being promoted by the by the very sport. That is is kept going. So you tell me that if two teams were allowed to play to a tie intentionally to help their playoff position, you tell me that we're not in fear or worry of some sort of major scandal coming up in regards to teams uh, losing games on purpose. Odds as they're set up, you know, Jacksonville going up against the Colts. Now the Colts are playing for a playoff spot. It'd be hard to bring up charges that the Colts lost the game on purpose you know are you going to pay the Indianapolis Colts individually the players and the organization the the gamblers from from that perspective are they going to pay them enough that's going to make up for any competitive financial gain they have by going to the playoffs competing for a Super Bowl and oh yeah listen if the Colts were in the playoffs they'd be a dangerous team. You can talk about reasons why things haven't worked out for the Colts. Uh, It seems like their turning point this year was Carson Wentz and his uh, COVID bout. Maybe he wasn't ready to come back. Maybe it spread to some other players. I don't know. There was a point this year where the Indianapolis Colts looked like one of the best teams in the National Football League. And as a Titans fan, I'm not ready to play the Colts in the postseason. If I'm any of the top teams in the AFC, I feel like we dodged a bullet not having the Indianapolis Colts, Jonathan Taylor, their strong defense, their strong offensive line. Yeah, they don't necessarily have a quarterback, and that could be the reason why the Colts aren't playing. You know, you talk about what I started a show about how important it is to have a quarterback. And you're going out there and say, hey, I'm going to make like we won a championship because my favorite team fired its head coach. You know, listen, there's a little time to say, hey, I'm glad this is a, a new beginning, The hope is we could get the right guy to lead us going forward. I'm all up for that crap. I, I, I get it. I see it from a fan perspective, and I understand it. But you look at the common interest or the common deficiencies that exist amongst the four teams that all let their head coach go within the last 24 hours. And really only the Vikings have an even moderate quarterback. You could say the Bears have a quarterback of their future. He's just not ready yet. Okay. You know you look at the Miami Dolphins. You heard me talk about Tua. He's been a disappointment since he's joined the NFL. Seven game winning streak or no seven game winning streak. The fact that the Dolphins have held themselves above water for the most part that he's been there. He looks like he's a serviceable quarterback. He looks like if he doesn't make mistakes you could win in spite of him. But he's not a big time quarterback. I think the Dolphins are going to be looking for a big time quarterback. You think you're going to be able to get there through your coach? And the Dolphins, you know, the basically the one example where they're they're winning in spite of the their lack of talent at the quarterback position. And Tua Oa was a very good college quarterback. Looked like he was going to be a star NFL quarterback. It has not worked out at this point. Doesn't mean it can. Can he get better? Sure. Can you structure an offense to succeed in spite of his deficiencies? Yes. But you're looking at the one example in Miami where they were winning in spite of not having a big-time quarterback, and they fired a coach anyway. So you expect Miami to do what a lot of other teams have, bring in an offensive-minded dude with an offensive-minded coaching staff and get a big-time quarterback. Now, I think the time for Tua tungle is running out in Miami. I expect him to be quarterbacking somebody else next year. I don't know. You know, there's 32 spots out there. There's certainly a team that Tua should be starting for this coming season. Yeah, you know, maybe maybe it's the Saints. Maybe it's the Seahawks if they move on from Russell Wilson. Maybe it's the Giants. There's going to be a lot of movement, and if, if you listen to this show, if this is something that you have any interest in, you'll know that. I've talked about what could potentially be a huge quarterback carousel as things swing around for next year. Deshaun Watson's going to be back. Jordan Love, Trey Lance are going to be starters, which means Aaron Rodgers and Jimmy Garoppolo likely will be playing somewhere else. Russell Wilson probably playing somewhere else. So you look at hey, it's a it's a musical chair type of thing. I think some of the weaker quarterbacks as they exist in the National Football League, going to get going to get challenged a lot more, at the very least. Some of the weaker quarterbacks, as they exist in the National Football League, might be backups. Look at Mitch Trubisky this year in Buffalo; he was a starter a year before. Maybe Baker Mayfield's somebody's backup this year. You never know. I think it depends on how this carousel goes around, but I think a lot of it's going to be centered around Miami. Miami by you know letting go of their coach, which basically solve somebody else's coaching issue. Somebody else is going to scoop up Brian Flores. So there's going to be one less job on the market, one more created because Miami fired their coach, but somebody else is going to get Brian Flores. It would actually be malpractice on the point of the National Football League if Brian Flores does not end up being somebody else's head coach next year. In fact, I'm not one to throw racism at you. I, I would blanketly... I would, you know, not blanketly, I would openly say that the NFL should be accused of racism if Brian Flores is not coaching another NFL team next year. I would go that far. That's how adamant I am that this is a quality NFL head coach. Do I think racism was involved in him losing his job in Miami? No. I think you're looking at an owner that was probably looking for more than the Dolphins were able to give him. Yeah, you, know, you imagine how it's like to go out there and win. Uh, you know seven games in a row after starting the season one and seven. yes they lost their last two. Tennessee blew them out. I'm sorry they lost they, they won their last game against New England and certainly in a spot nine and eight after starting the year one and seven, I get the element that the expectations were higher. To me this is a coach you go with going forward. and think about the Miami Dolphins since Don Shula they had no stability at the coaching position. And you want to back up my point that I've said all along, you cannot switch coaches every two, three years and gain any sort of stability. What teams do that? What teams are are out there competing for a Super Bowl year in and year out, and they are switching their coaches every two, three years? Nobody's doing that. The Miami Dolphins are in disarray because they have no stability at the head coach position. Yes, they also don't have a quarterback. Which is a major reason why there's so much turnover at the coaching position, but I think one has to do with the other. And if you want to play this game, hey, what should come first, the chicken or the egg? And listen, it doesn't matter. And and listen, there's bad coaches out there, so I'm I'm not going to say as this is a hundred percent, but great quarterbacks look like they always have pretty good head coaches. You know, Mike McCarthy won a Super Bowl with Aaron Rodgers. He got himself a job with the Dallas Cowboys because of the success he had in Green Bay. You want to say, hey, he's a good coach, a bad coach. Aaron Rodgers could say he's, you know, his favorite coach, not his favorite coach, whatever. Mike McCarthy won a Super Bowl with Aaron Rodgers, and while Aaron Rodgers was there with Mike McCarthy, Mike McCarthy looked like a good friggin' head coach. Jack Pardee looked like a pretty damn good head coach when Warren Moon was there. And you talk about the great quarterbacks that are out there, the coaches, whether it's Indianapolis, Tony Dungy. Yeah, you talk about his success that he had there. You talk about uh, Jim Caldwell with Matthew Stafford with the Lions, but before that, obviously, with Peyton and uh, the Indianapolis Colts. You got a good quarterback. Your coach all of a sudden becomes good. And I start to think of, let's say, a Matt Nagy who the Chicago Bears and their fans has been after for a couple of years. They finally got their wish. Like I said, you go out there, and you put that pennant banner up there, and say, 2022, the Bears fired Matt Nagy. And he put up there up there, right with their Super Bowl 1985 and any of the NFL championships they won in years before. the The issue that I have with this is there is a common factor and a common reason why most of these teams are firing their coaches right now. And it's because they don't have a good enough quarterback. i put Kirk Cousins in that mix. Maybe it's time that the Vikings think about upgrading at the position. Now, it's hard to do that through a draft that doesn't really have that type of talent. There's a couple guys that are going to go in there. You know, the, the Matt Corals of the world are going to get themselves a, a, a chance to be a, a starter somewhere in the National Football League. Yeah, you know, I said I like uh, Malik Willis out of Liberty. Um Kenny Pickett from Pittsburgh should be a first-round talent. Sam Howell's going to get drafted. Carson Strong from Nevada. So, just based off of the need at the position, teams are going to draft this guy, these guys, with a wish and aspirations that they become something. Maybe they're a little bit better than people thought out of college. And you think of all the different things that happened. In a National Football League, we talk about Tom Brady being drafted in the sixth round. You talk about all these other different things that are reasons as you're as you're trying to figure out and wonder why certain players are as good as they are. I'll take you right to a particular draft in a national football league. It's a little bit surprising that really turned out to churn a lot of talent in an unexpected type of time. Now, the 1971 draft started out with the likes of Jim Plunkett getting drafted number one overall, and was the first draft in the history of the NFL draft to have quarterbacks go one, two, and three. And obviously, this is something that's been referenced over the last several months, because the last draft, the 2020, or 2021 NFL draft, Saw three quarterbacks go as the first three picks in the draft. I think the other time was, what are we talking about maybe nineteen ninety eight something like that? I'm thinking Tim Couch. I'm thinking Achilles Smith. Uh, I'm not going to move on until I figure this out. So we're gonna we're gonna look at Tim Couch. Drafted number one overall by the Browns in nineteen ninety nine. And you remember that draft? If you do, it was Tim Couch. It was. Donovan McNabb, it was Achilles Smith going one one through three. So something certainly standing out about the 71 draft, the first of its kind to have quarterbacks go one, two, three. And then you, you, I look at, as I go through the stats, and I say, passing yards. And it's I think it's a great question to ask, and it just shows the depth and the strength of how good this draft really was. If I tell you, that Jim Plunkett went number one overall to the New England Patriots, if I tell you that uh, Archie Manning went number two overall to the New Orleans Saints, if I tell you that Dan Pastorini went number three overall to the Houston Oilers, who, who in the draft had the most passing yards? Who in the draft had the most touchdown passes? Who in that draft threw the most interceptions? Who in that draft had the most rushing yards? I think you'd be a little surprised. I think you'd be surprised with the amount of depth that existed in this draft. And, you know, I like how this ended up turning out. I like the talent as they existed here Plunkett, Manning, Pastorini. Three quality quarterbacks that all had very good NFL careers. Plunkett stands out because he won two Super Bowls. And and it's funny, you you heard me talk before about the importance, the need, the very interest that team should have in having a star quarterback. The Oakland Raiders won two Super Bowls in 80 and 83 with a quarterback of Jim Plunkett that probably wasn't an all-time great. In fact, He's the only two-time Super Bowl-winning quarterback that's eligible for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. That's not in there. Big Ben will get there. I think Eli Manning, over time, will get inducted as well. You know, maybe a little, little more rigorous operation to get Eli put in, but I think that the NFL is going to soften its uh, borders enough to allow him to get in. But Jim Plunkett, two-time Super Bowl-winning quarterback, not in the Hall of Fame. And you look at his accomplishments and you say, well, he threw more interceptions than touchdowns. He threw it for, what, 25,000 yards? You know, I mean, I look at him and I compare him to Archie Manning and you say, you know, not really. uh, One wasn't necessarily better than the other based off of performance and stats on the football field. But Jim Plunkett won two Super Bowls. That's why he's getting the credit that he, he deserves now. I think with Tom Flores... His head football coach with the Raiders getting into the Hall of Fame. I think it opens the door for more consideration for Plunkett. Now Manning was a good quarterback. Obviously, best known for his sperm that produced Peyton and Eli. One definite Hall of Famer. One Hall of Famer on the way. Two great quarterbacks. Quarterbacks that won four Super Bowls. So, Archie Manning's sperm was certainly better than his ability to throw a football. But he, he was solid in his time. Had a good career with the New Orleans Saints. Now, the Saints were a bad football team. It was hard for them to ever get anything or anybody around him to help. And you, know, you look at his time there in the 70s and a lot of losses. 15-loss season, 11 11-loss season, 11 11-loss season, 8, 8, 9. You know, when you're talking about 8 losses in 14-game seasons... And you, know, you wonder, hey, if he had a, a couple more skilled players, a better offensive line, a better defense, maybe a better head coach, I don't know. Does Archie Manning do a little bit more in, in, in his career as a, a pro football quarterback? Pastorini, I look at, it and I think he, he is a, an interesting story because you look at the Oilers, who had, were kind of the, the most fickle team of the 1970s. They drafted, like I said, Pastorini number three overall. He gets taken out of Santa Clara, right? Yeah, he, t- he gets taken out of Santa Clara. 1-11 and 0-10 and, zero and 10 record with him as a starter. And then in the middle of the 70s, towards the end of the 70s, the Oilers got good. And Pastorini won 10 games as a starter, 8 games as a starter, 10 games as a starter, 10 games as a starter. And then there's the famous line by head coach Bum Phillips. Was basically speaking to owner Bud Adams about his job status, trying to save his job, says, Listen, I think we're a quarterback away. And I'm sure Bud Adams was getting ready to fire Bump Phillips. He gives Bump Phillips a chance to go out there, make a trade with the Raiders, bring in Kenny the Snake Stabler, and Pastorini is the scapegoat. Sadly enough, Pastorini's career is over three years later while only starting five more games, I'm sorry, ten more games. Five with the Raiders in 1980, five with the Rams in 1981. And the sad thing about Dan Pastorini and how this really comes full circle, Pastorini is traded for Stabler. And the Raiders, the team that Pastorini is traded to, end up winning the Super Bowl that year. And Pastorini, of course, ends up having a, a bad leg injury. Uh, ends up the fans are cheering as uh, as he lays there injured. They're, they're tired of him after five games. Jim Plunkett, ironically, as this thing comes full circle, the number one overall pick selected two spots ahead of Pastorini takes over for Dan, leads the Raiders to the first of their two Super Bowls that Plunkett wins as the starting quarterback there. So we're Pastorini and Plunkett and Archie Manning, the three best quarterbacks taken in that draft, it's a a loud no. And I'll pull up passing yards from that draft, 1971. And Plunkett, Manning, Pastorini basically rank from two to six in passing yards. Which means there's three other quarterbacks that were taken in this draft that actually had some clout, had legitimate NFL careers. Number one, Kenny Anderson. Kenny Anderson's taken in a third round pick number 67. Joe Theismann was taken by the Miami Dolphins in the fourth round, number 99 overall in this draft and of course Theismann sits there a couple of years as a as a backup on the bench ends up in his 30s becoming a pretty solid starter leads the Washington at then that point Redskins to the Super Bowl had a solid career. So Kenny Anderson, Joe Theismann, and then a quarterback that I don't think is getting any sort of respect when it comes to the durability and career that he ended up having. And I'm talking about Lynn Dickey. And Lynn Dickey would be a good answer for a trivia question if you wanted to say, hey, who was the first quarterback in the history of the Green Bay Packers to throw for over 4,000 yards? Who was the first quarterback in the history of the Green Bay Packers to throw 30-plus touchdowns in a season. It's not Aaron Rodgers. It's not Brett Favre. It's not Don Mikowski. It's not Bart Starr. I would think you know Rodgers, Favre, Starr would all be your top three choices, and you may throw another couple ones into the wind before you went to Lynn Dickey. And unless you're a Packers fan of the 1980s, you probably don't remember much about Lynn Dickey. Packers weren't very good in the 1980s, but they also weren't very bad. There were 500 type of teams. Not great, but not bad. And Lynn Dickey was a serviceable starting quarterback in the NFL. Kind of that game manager that you talk about today. Alex Smith won a lot of games not being a a top-of-the-line, top-level quarterback. I think you could say the same about Eli Manning and a couple others. Lynn Dickey was a solid quarterback for the Packers for a better part of the first half of the 1980s. Really from 80 to 84 or 80 to 85, he was their regular quarterback. He was the bridge until they drafted Don Mikowski before they traded for Brett Favre, before they signed and after they drafted Aaron Rodgers. But Lynn Dickey comes from the same 1971 draft, was taken in a third round by, wait for it, wait for it, the Houston Oilers. So what were the Houston Oilers thinking about in a nineteen seventy one draft? You know, and and I remember obviously the Redskins at the time, or obviously not a football team, the beginning of February, it'll be known as some other, you know, name, whatever. But the the Redskins, when they took Robert Griffin the third, with the second overall pick, took Kirk Cousins in the fourth round. Now the Oilers, with the number three overall pick, took pastorini and in the third round took lynn dickey out of kansas state and lynn dickey did what he was expected to do sat was a backup for the first four years or so and then ends up going to the green bay packers where he played 10 games played nine games played three games didn't really get a full season until 1980 Now, I look at his season of 1983, throws for 4,458 yards. The reason I point that out is only one time in the history of the Green Bay Packers has a quarterback thrown for more yards than Lynn Dickey did in 1983. And that was Aaron Rodgers a handful of years ago. Just one time. Brett Favre never did it. Talk about Bart Starr, obviously a different type of offensive setup at that point, wasn't throwing the ball as often, but I think he was still an all-time great quarterback. You you look at Favre and Rodgers and you say between the two of their careers, only once did they throw for more than 4,458 yards, which is what Lynn Dickey did in 1983. As always, I want to spend some time thanking everybody for tuning in to the Passball Show. But back with you, maybe tomorrow. Who knows? Maybe tomorrow will be a good day to Uh, Let out some steam. Real quick on a championship game. Looking forward to it. I think we're going to look at Georgia getting revenge, beating Alabama. I'm a big fan of the dynasty, so I can see myself rooting for Alabama. And I don't mind it. I like Nick Saban. I think he's a great coach. If Alabama wins, I'd probably be happy. But listen, I said at the beginning of the year, Georgia was one of the top teams in college football. And you you don't hear my takes on college football end up holding any water too often. This is one that did. Before a game was played, I told you Georgia was going to be good. They had enough players coming back last year. They had a great recruiting class. Kirby Smart, I think, was uh, was determined to have a solid competing football team on the field this year and compete in a strong SEC. And it looks like he did that. So I was right about Georgia being good. So if Georgia wins, I could say, hey, I thought Georgia was the best team coming into the season. If Alabama wins, I could say, listen, I'm, I'm there rooting for, you know, big-time coaches like Nick Saban who are doing nothing but winning championships in college football. We'll be back with you next week, or actually, I said tomorrow, right? God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side. Oh, Why don't you give it all for a majority it,
0: to the team that wins the freaking World Series? I am just going to listen to that, but then I just carried on it my life. I may come out. As the biggest Major League Baseball manager apologist, that'll only make someone work just hard enough not to get fired. Because hitters are going out there saying, I'm either going to hit a home run or I'm going to strike out. And if I don't get a pitch that I feel like I could drive out of the park, I'm supposed to be here today. Especially prospect whores and hoarders are going to be a little pissed off at me when I say this. I'm a dude, a dude disguises dude. There are only two managers in baseball's Hall of Fame who have losing records. One of them is the iconic Connie Mack, who you could say, in spite of winning five World Series championships as a manager, could be in as much as a pioneer. Side of the spectrum, they are. Were they pitching? Were they batting? If your favorite team was pitching and a ball got inside and hit a batter, there's no way it could have been on purpose. But if, if you were a fan of the team that was batting and a ball got inside and hit somebody or went behind somebody's head, absolutely 100 percent, unequivocally, that pitcher was throwing at them. Well, we, we it? They put their tail between their legs and decided they're going to do exactly what they're told. You damn well right better give him a contract extension. You damn well right better make him the manager over the next series of years. 35 years ago, I could have loaned your parents the money for an abortion.